Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tetz. And we're back with Rabbi Tetz in the final of three episodes discussing COVID-19. Now, Rabbi Tetz, we've had people complaining about their lack of sleep this week as we left them with a very troubling question. Does Rabbi Tetz mind to repeat the question and give us the answer that we've all been waiting for? Razna, thank you very much again for hosting me on this podcast series. Man, I must say you've asked some excellent questions and a lot of research obviously went into those questions and I've enjoyed answering them. Thank you. The question we left off with last week in our triage discussion was when two conflicting principles or priorities arise, proximity as against relationship. I walk into a room, two people are dying, I can only save one. One is physically closer to me and the further one is related to me. So two Jewish priorities. Proximity, I may not walk past a person who is closer. Ein ma'avirin ala mitzvot, I may not bypass a mitzvah. All else being equal, the closer person gets treated first. On the other hand, the Torah tells me to prioritize my brother, but he's more distant. The procedure here is you bypass the closer person and go to your brother. And the question we left off with last week was why. I'll give you one suggestion. One suggestion. This comes from a learned Rosh Hashiva. Rabbi Eichenstein, in fact, proposed this answer. One cogent answer would be, we say that you're always obliged to go to the one who is closer. First come, first served. The one you have a prior commitment to. Well, you have a prior commitment to your brother. In other words, although in this circumstance one person is physically closer to me, but so to speak my obligation to my brother began before that, so that I really was already bound, so to speak. We call that mashubed in halachic terms. There's already a shibud, so to speak, to my brother. That would trump, that together with the fact that he's my brother, that would trump the fact that I have someone physically closer. Be that as it may, I'm sure some of our listeners might come up with their own halachic logic, but the correct decision is, in fact, that you would bypass the closer person. And indeed, if one is more seriously injured and one is less injured, one would bypass the closer person to get to the more seriously, or shall I put it this way, if one can be saved in the long term and one only saved in the short term, halakhically we save the long-term person. But if the long-term person is more distant, I indeed would walk past the short-term survival person to get to the long-term survival. General answer needs more detail, but that's in general, general direction. So just a question popped into my head now. So if one were to, let's say, have an older brother. So when you were born, the brother already existed. So he's your basarcha, he's part of you, and your younger brother only came about afterwards. Does one have priority to save one's older brother first? Fascinating question. I'm not sure there would be a difference there because they're both called basarcha. Indeed, if one were to choose, I've got an older brother and a younger brother, you might indeed choose the older. But there probably the reason is a different reason. And there, in the laws of honoring parents, is brought that you are obliged also to honor an older brother because the word et is used in the Torah. So that we learn from that that a brother takes priority in being honored because the Torah actually commands it. Now there is a discussion. Is it the oldest brother and or sister? Or is it any older brother? That's an interesting, interesting debate. But nevertheless, there's a more important reason for honoring and saving or giving something to a brother 
And that again, as I say, vested in a word in the Torah. So as we said earlier, this is the final in three episodes discussing COVID. In the previous two, we talked about the prevention of the disease with the vaccines, and then we spoke about the priorities in treatment. Today, we'll be discussing another very sensitive topic, which is end-of-life issues, and specifically in the age of COVID. So as we know, preservation of life in Judaism is of the utmost priority. You mentioned that last week. We believe that every second of one's life is very precious. In fact, there is mitzvot in the Torah like v'chai bohem and v'nishmartem, which pretty much allows us to transgress the whole Torah, besides for the big three, to save and extend someone's life. However, if a patient is terminally ill with COVID or another disease, is treatment always required? Yes, very important and unfortunately very real question in in real time, as we say. May I remind our listeners that I've written a book about this, and that's called Dangerous Disease and Dangerous Therapy in Jewish Medical Ethics. It has a very, very extensive section on the details of this area, and it's freely available, that book. Any of our listeners are welcome to email me if you have trouble getting it. I'm happy to download you the, the material on this with the greatest of pleasure. Very broadly, as you correctly say, our starting point is life is of infinite value. And therefore, we may do nothing to foreshorten a life. And under normal circumstances, let's call it all else being equal, we'd be obliged to do almost anything to prolong almost any sort of life. The classic example is the Mishnah says, persons buried under rubble, for example, a collapsed building, we would break Shabbat all day to try to dig the person out, even if we aren't even sure that he's alive, and even if he'd live only for another moment, and even if he wouldn't be conscious for that moment. So we put aside questions of quality of life and expense and virtually everything in order to save life. However, there are exceptions. There are exceptions under which it is permissible not to treat. I didn't say withdraw treatment that is actively being given. That's a different question. But to not administer treatment, there are certain circumstances. I'll give you a very, very brief screamingly fast overview and then if you like we can take a little bit more of the detail in order to not treat someone that means to consciously allow someone to die withhold treatment we need a certain set of criteria they're very clearly defined although sometimes the devil can be in the details and these criteria as follows we need somebody guaranteed terminally ill not some long-term sort of decline. The person has to be terminally ill. Of course, each of these will need definition. Secondly, suffering uncontrollably. Thirdly, who does not want to continue. Let me say that again. If a person is guaranteed to die, that's what we call chayei sha'a. In English, we call that terminally ill. Needs definition, but let's assume we have such a thing. Terminally ill. Second, suffering uncontrollably and or unconscious with no hope of ever regaining consciousness who under those circumstances does not or would not want to continue, says Ramosha Feinstein, you may not prolong their life. You may not, because you're just prolonging suffering. You have no right to cause this person to languish in agony under all circumstances. So those are the three criteria that we need. Let me speak briefly about definitions. Firstly, we need somebody terminally ill. Not a sort of a long-term Alzheimer's decline. You know Dr. Kavokian, the famous American doctor who helped people die, gave them lethal injections and so on. The first lady he killed was a lady called Janet Atkins. She had a gradual beginning of an Alzheimer's process. She could no longer play a good game of tennis with her son. So he helped her kill herself. Now, I know that not playing tennis with your son is serious, but it's not that serious. And therefore, Jewishly, absolutely not. So we need somebody terminally ill. What's the definition of terminal illness? The general consensus that's been agreed, again, we don't have time in 
in this podcast to go into the detail, is a year. A year. So when a person is, according to consensus of expert medical opinion, this person, at their age, at this stage of this particular disease, virtually no one survives a year, then we would define them as Shaya which puts them into a whole different category of what we may or may not do. I'd like to point out something very interesting here. Israeli law, secular Israeli law, defines the period as six months. Why? Because a number of years ago, the Dying Patients Act was passed in Israel, Chok HaCholea Notelamut, as it's known, going back now some 15, 20 years. And a law was passed in Israel at the time. That law was passed defining, first of all, what is called terminal illness. And secondly, under those circumstances, what may you do and what are you obliged to do? Very advanced law. I'm not sure other countries have some law as focused as this. The law mandates palliative treatment. When a person is defined as terminally, you're obliged to give pain-relieving medication, even if they're dangerous. And if the patient dies due to the medication, the doctor's exempt. In other words, we want to encourage doctors to do whatever's necessary to relieve pain, and you'll be protected medical legally. Very interesting. You may also desist from treatment at that time. So it's got life and death consequences, this law. Now, the parliament, the Israeli Knesset, wanted to know, how do we define terminal illness? So for this and a number of other questions, they convened a committee of 34 Israeli experts, medical professors, ultra-right-wing Orthodox rabbis, one or two Arab members as well. Rabbi Amena, can you imagine a committee of 34 Israelis? You know, two Israelis uh, discuss the weather. <laughs> it gets dangerous. I was going to say, we'll never know the answer. Well, amazingly, despite the life and death nature of this debate among, you know, hot-blooded Israelis, there was virtually unanimous agreement and the agreement followed the track suggested by the rabbis. After all, right-wing, let's call them orthodox rabbis, we were well-versed in these matters. We thought about them carefully. We have a lot of definitions. And the committee felt they were very reasonable and put them to the Knesset. They suggested to the Knesset that the law kick in when a period of one year has been defined as terminal illness. The Israeli parliament decided to be more religiously conservative than the rabbis. And they cut it back to six months. Answer first. And I'll tell you why. The reason was they said this, they heard expert medical testimony that it's much easier to prognosticate accurately over a six-month period than 12 months. In other words, when they say to the doctor, doctor, how long is this patient going to live? We are notoriously bad at doing that. In other words, the doctor says, oh, he's going to live exactly eight months and two weeks. That is ridiculous. Even South African doctors don't always get that right. And so to prognosticate a person will live for a year, it gets vague. Again, there's a curve of accuracy. And to, to predict that somebody will live less than six months, we can be much more confident than somebody will live a year or more. And not wanting to get into the tiger country of allowing people to die and not treating them inappropriately, the Knesset decided to be more conservative. And so amazingly, and of course the rabbis were quite happy with that, in Israel today the legal definition is six months. And we agree more or less but the general consensus halakhically is something like a year. When the person is within a year and they are suffering uncontrollably and they don't want to continue, we should not be forcing them to continue. I'd like to point out that no one should ever suffer uncontrollably today. Okay, we have enough medications and, and techniques today to take care of any degree of pain. The problem is twofold. Psychosocial suffering, much harder to deal with than physical pain depression and abandonment and hopelessness and family tensions, and that's a very, very difficult area. And no medication, unfortunately, can cure those. And the other is that although we can cure any degree of pain, sometimes it involves great danger. So very briefly, without the details, in Jewish law, you may give a dangerous pain relief medication, knowing that it's dangerous, 
rather than allow the person to suffer uncontrollably. Now, how you titrate that balance is a subject we need to discuss in detail. But in general, we do not allow people to suffer because we are worried about the danger of giving a medication. So under the correct circumstances, one is entitled, in fact obliged, to take a certain amount of risk in order to relieve unbearable pain. You mentioned before about a professor who used to help people die after the game of tennis. For many, many years in Switzerland, especially, it's legal to end one's life with assisted suicide for only a minor fee of £10,000, I believe. Is this ever allowed in Jewish law? Even if it was free, we wouldn't, uh, wouldn't allow it. <laughs> yes, indeed, Switzerland and Belgium and some parts of Australia, Oregon, various other places, in fact, that is the law. In Judaism, we may never do anything to actively shorten our life. Never do anything to foreshorten or cause a death. So let, let me give you an example. Let's say somebody is terminally ill, suffering, does not want to continue. Don't put them on a machine. Don't put them on a ventilator. Absolutely acceptable. Provided you are giving certain minimums, liquid, food, oxygen, we may never allow a person to starve to death just because they're terminally ill. So there are many, many caveats and limitations here. But surgery, chemotherapy, etc., we would not do. However, if the person's on a ventilator, and it's keeping them alive moment to moment, we may not switch it off. Even in circumstances where we may not be obliged to put a person on the machine, because they're suffering, they don't want to go on the machine, they're dying anyway. But once they're on, you switch it off, you're killing them. Or they have an infusion, intravenous infusion of a drug keeping the heart beating, beat after beat. You switch that off, you're killing them. Now, when the drug ends, I may not have to put another one up. Or if the patient's undergoing, let's say, a dialysis three times a week, so I don't have to give them the next artist's session. I can withhold it. But to stop something actively, that actively is an act of commission that causes the person to die, that I'm not allowed to do in Judaism. Mm. Assisted suicide too, by the way, where I'm not doing something, but the patient is doing something like taking the medications or opening an intravenous line with the medicine. I'm not allowed to assist that, and the patient's not allowed to do that either. Not that we think it's necessarily a miscalculation, Right, Some suffering is worse than death. That may be true. Nevertheless, Judaism does not allow an active taking of a life or foreshortening of a life. So sitting back would not be considered active. That, that is the defining no. difference. Indeed, indeed. So you mentioned before about taking drugs, medication that could potentially be dangerous. How about this is many times when people are battling with death, there's going to be a high risk procedure that could save their life. Or if it goes wrong, it could end sooner. Is that allowed? Right, this is a wonderful question too, and of course it really deserves a full a full discussion. Yes, this is a classic question, and the question is this. Somebody's dying. I know they're dying. I'm not talking about maybe. And the only hope is a risky procedure. As you say, if it succeeds, it will save them in the long term. If it fails, we'll kill them tomorrow morning during the procedure. In Judaism, is that allowed or not? Fascinating discussion. I'll cut to the bottom line. It is indeed allowed, not obliged, discretionary. So the Talmud actually discusses that very scenario, comes to the conclusion that if a person has a chance at long-term life, when death is guaranteed, let me make an introductory comment here. If you don't know if the person's dying or not, then the choice of action is do nothing. So I come across a certain person, let's say they're injured badly. I have an example. Someone's injured, their neck's at a weird angle and they're gasping. Mm. Is their neck broken and the spinal cord is being compressed and if I do nothing, they'll die? But if I straighten them out with professional expertise, straighten their neck, I'll save their life. Or are they just hanging on, and when I move them, I'll kill them. So I don't know if my action will kill or heal, and I don't know if doing nothing will kill or heal. There's a very clear Jewish procedure, do 
nothing. Better they should die because you failed to save them than die because you killed them. All else being equal, of course, 50-50 either way. That would be the circumstance. And in general, in fact, there's a well-known medical axiom, first do no harm. That's the doctor's first obligation. Before you consider treating, don't do any harm. This is sort of the Jewish equivalent. But let's say I have somebody whom I know is dying. Not a maybe, 100%. This patient will not survive the night. But if I do a dangerous operation, or let's talk about a person who's going to live for a few months, I do a dangerous operation tomorrow morning. If it's successful, they're cured. If it's not successful, I deprive them of the three months of life they would have had. So the Talmud comes to the conclusion, again, without going into all the textual nuances, that they may choose such an option. Not obliged, they may choose it. Now the question is, how risky? How risky? Maybe we'll finish with this, and I'll tell you very interesting. The older halachic opinions, you go back to Amishnas Chachamim, one of the early sources, and other sources going back 100 years and more, there were many great rabbis who felt that you could do something risky, but not more than a 50% risk. In other words, there's a 100% chance the patient will die. The operation or whatever you're going to do has a better than 50% chance of saving the patient. They may choose that operation. But if it's got a greater than 50% chance of killing the patient, they may not. Now, I once asked Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, why? My teacher, my Rebbe, why? What's the logic? And he said, very elegant logic, he said this, any medical procedure that's more likely to kill you than to save you does not deserve to be called a medicine. Something that's more likely to kill you than to save you does not deserve the name of a medical therapy. That's just that's not right. It's a gamble. It's, it's a negative gamble. Something that's called a medicine must be something that's at least more likely to save you than to kill you. And therefore, if it's not called a medical treatment, it's out of order. Despite that, all modern opinions, and we clearly rule this way, hold that even if it's less than a 50% chance that you'll survive, even less, you're entitled to choose it. You may choose it. Now, there is a debate. How low does that figure need to be before it becomes forbidden? So some opinions say 20%, and some say 10%, and some say 5 The Chazam Sofer says one in a thousand is good enough. After all, you're going to die anyway. So you might as well take the chance. Rabbi Yoshev used to say maybe something like 5%. There's one Talmudic source that says one in six. And that's much too high, by the way, he said, for somebody voluntarily entering such a risk to make a living, for example. But when life's at stake, then one may choose an option that is more likely to kill than to heal. The reason being, says the Talmud, that if you can certainly die, then it's worth doing even something relatively desperate in order to survive. So bottom line, let me summarize. Bottom line, if a person is dangerously ill, dangerous mean guaranteed death, and I can offer them a procedure, chemotherapy or radical surgery, whatever it is, that if it succeeds will save them, not prolong temporary life. I'm talking about cure. I'm not just talking about prolonging temporary life. That not. I'm talking about something that will radically alter the situation and give the person long-term prospects. Then I may do it even if the chances are, the preponderance of chances are, that it will kill them. May not force it on the patient. Perhaps sometime in the future we can talk about under what circumstances can you force somebody into treatment. But this is entirely discretionary. That's how Moshe Feinstein learns that section of the Talmud. Therefore, we say to the patient, you will die without treatment. We can offer you something that's dangerous. If it works, you'll survive. If not, you will die sooner. What is your wish? Of course, a fascinating question is, what if they can't tell us? It's a baby, they're unconscious, uh, they're demented. That's another question, and perhaps if there's time or next time, we can talk about that question. Okay.
that brings our COVID series to an end. It's been absolutely fascinating and a lot of food for thought. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Tetz, for giving me the opportunity to discuss these very important issues with you. Please join us next week again for a new series topic to be announced. And in the meantime, any comments, feedback or suggestions for future topics can be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk. See you next week.